All right. Hello, Idiots on Parade, the Too Ugly for TV podcast. Bonus podcast, vodcast. We broadcast the audio, but it's basically video. Uh, hello, Barrett Antar Goodwin, kind of hey. on the screen. Yeah. How are you, sir? I am well. It's been a while since we've spoken. It has been. It's been a minute, man. And your Hold backdrop on. is different. My, I changed it my is. backdop. I, I went somewhere different uh, because I knew you were going to be somewhere different. We've we've been Absolutely. Uh, off because you. I can't call you a New York uh, musician anymore. What's your shirt there going on? You're you're somewhere new. Oh. <laughs> yeah, bad things happen in Philadelphia. <laughs> it's a quote from our beloved president. Um, oh, I went I to a, I went to a show. He's talking about the mail-in voting. Oh. And then they're talking about, he said, yeah, you know, Philadelphia, bad things happen in Philadelphia or something like that. And then somebody took the shirt and used the always sunny font. Yeah, I was going to say, that is the sunny font. <laughs> so I just thought yeah, it was So you're hilarious. a Philly guy now. I am indeed a Philly guy. I, I'm really loving it. It's only been, you know, I guess it'll be a month uh in a couple days and and are you voting there it. did you register to vote are you gonna are you gonna help swing pennsylvania because you know new york was taken care of jersey <laughs> taken care of, but philly needs I your vote can't. I, i'm still i didn't get here in time i'm still registered in jersey because oh. i changed my address but i didn't officially change this stuff so i'm gonna vote in jersey and then register but my plan is to probably hop skip it out of the country as, as soon as possible i don't think this place is gonna i think the american experiment is gonna go through uh, several years of turmoil and i'd like to see it from a distance that's all so you know i haven't fully committed to this idea yet but it's definitely percolating you know definitely Fair percolating enough. yes but how are you sir what's going on what are we talking about today well Something you and I talked about off air for like a half a second. Oh. And I'd like to maybe try and expand on it. Sure. You and I were talking about, um, I don't know how we phrased it. We were talking about being parents, dads, imprinting on our mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realized I, I had a thought and then I realized, oh shit, I've had this thought in the past. So here we go. I'm just going to jump in. Um, Hillary goes to Taekwondo. You know. I'm going to do some action moves here for anybody watching. Anyway, Hillary goes to Taekwondo and uh, um, what, the, the, the kids do their, their, their thing. And I, I looked around and I noticed every parent just sitting staring at their phone. And it, it, I, I said, wow, what, what a horrible thing for a kid to look over at their parent and see. Um, because of COVID, I, I, I'll explain this. Um, because of COVID, they, they have these squares that the kids go in, uh, these mats that are colored and you can't leave your mat. So everybody's like eight, 10 feet apart. So the classes mm -hmm. are small. They're only like 13 kids per class or something like that. So the parents have to go right there and sit right next to the kid. So it's not like uh, back of the room or another room. It's like the parent is right there and the kid is doing their thing. And you see it, you see the kids just sort of look around and, and the parents are just like ignoring them. And I'm like, what? And I had this thought like, wow, what kind of message does that send to a kid? Which is, yeah, you, you do your thing. I'm not interested in paying attention to you or watching you. And then the thought I had that I realized, I'm like, oh, I've had this thought before. I've had this thought before when I would take my kids when they were much younger and they're only six and eight now, but when they were two and three, we'd go to one of those little soft, squishy play areas in the local mm -hmm. rec center that had, you know, it's, um, it's not a playground, but they just have, it's very small. And uh, the parents would just sit on the on the padded benches and stare at their phones. And if there were only like two or three kids in there, I'd run around and play with my kids. I'd give them horsey rides and swing them around. We'd have fun. They'd be like, yay. And if there were more kids, I would sit you know, back and let all the kids play. But I would always just watch my kids. And I would notice when they would be doing something and they'd sort of look to me for approval. And I'd just be like, hey, sweetie, you know, like thumbs up or hey, I'm watching. And then they would like just go right back to what they were doing. And I would watch other kids look at their parents and see them on their phone and not look defeated, but it would sink in. They would notice. And this is where I'll stop talking. I remember full well the day I saw Hillary or Truman playing with a kid and they looked at me and I waved and then their kid looked at their parent, saw him on the phone and then just sort of looked at me and looked at Hillary or looked at Truman and looked like they were processing it they were processing that phone is more important than me. And 
I, I don't, I don't know what to say from here, but you and I had this conversation of how we, we teach children. And uh, that, that to me is a big way we teach them is by paying attention to them and or watching them or interacting with them as opposed to now I'm taking you to Taekwondo. Now I'm taking you to school. I'm dropping you off. You know, what, what do you think? I think that I don't remember where I read this, but I remember uh, reading somewhere that people were talking about the way children develop a healthy sense of independence is actually by doing exactly what you're talking about. So if you're watching your kid and your kid is doing something and you're looking over and they see that you're paying attention, they feel safer to go out on their own without you being right next to them because they know that you're in a, you're in the distance watching. Hmm. And there's something that they said that like, it gives them a healthy sense of attachment that allows them to go farther, which when they get ready to detach, they learn to trust themselves because you give them approval for what is the, what's okay for them to do or not okay. So then they learn how to make their own decisions from a distance with your approval to a degree but then it, they were allowed to separate because they go, oh, see, I made like four or five right decisions and daddy went like this versus, do you know what I mean? And they start to piece it together and it gives them a healthier sense of, atta of, of attachment and then detachment when necessary. And when you don't do that with children, it makes them clingy long-term and it makes them approval-seeking and it, it, it leads to the kind of approval seeking that becomes really dangerous, like approval seeking and people pleasing behaviors that become dangerous later in life. Do you know what I mean? I actually read that somewhere. I don't remember where I read it. So don't quote me on it. Anybody who's actually a study of a psychology person, like whatever, yeah, you leave get your psychology stuff from a bass player, you're an idiot. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you do make me think of um, the opposite. I wasn't thinking of detachment or attachment when I was speaking. But the instant I started listening to you, I whoever just took a shit upstairs and flushed the toilet, I hope that went right through the microphone so everyone heard that, did it? Did you did you hear the toilet flush right above me? I heard I heard something. I couldn't tell it was a toilet flush, but now yeah, I can right there. Um podcasting. Um the opposite end of that. I, until you, until I started listening to you, I realized, well, the, op, the other, the, aside from, uh, yeah, whatever, I'm looking at my phone, is the helicopter parent. Uh, there's, right. and, and I'm not saying I'm a good dad. I'm not saying I'm doing everything perfectly. But it does make me think like, all right, I think I'm not doing horribly. I think I'm finding this middle ground of not helicoptering, not being on you, and not, you know, like, oh, put your foot here. Oh, don't do that. And mm -hmm. also not complete indifference. And the nice thing is, is I did it accidentally. And hopefully I am doing it right. I mean, there's no book. There's no manual. Right? I mean, there are a ton of them. There are actually a ton of parenting. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> I just don't want to read any of them because I think they're boring. I'll figure it out on my own, just like my folks did. <laughs> no, I mean, that's true. There's, there's a book. <laughs> or in my case, I'll figure it out on my own by doing not what my parents did. Um, oh, I mean, you either do what they did or the exact opposite one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Like, like, uh, you know, like how they say art is a, either a, rea a reaction or a response to the previous generation. Kind of parenting is the same. <laughs> parenting is kind of a reaction to how you were parented. It's either the same or the exact opposite. You know, like in a weird way, like children of alcoholics are often alcoholics or like stone cold sober their whole right. lives. You know what I mean? Like, uh, again, don't take your philosophical or psychological advice from a bass player, but that's what I've heard. Well, I'm, I, not to not to go off subject, but we never have subjects. Um, go full circle, but you just made me think of something. You said art is uh, what? Did, what did you say about art? Art is a, either like a, response. A, a, a response or a reaction. I mean, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, I read an article. Um, we're, we are approaching the 30th anniversary of Nevermind by Nirvana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wow. think it was crazy. 91, maybe. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That seems so crazy. Oh well, it just God. means that that baby on the cover is a 30 year old. <laughs> that's fucked up. And we've all seen his weenie. <laughs> that's true. Hopefully it's grown. Mine didn't. Very sad. 
But uh, the producer, Butch Vig, was asked if it would have the same cultural impact today as it did then. And he said he didn't think so. He said it would still be a great album. People would still love it. But it came out at the perfect time because there was a cultural shift taking place. Heavy metal ruled the 80s. And we were about to break into really heavy rap. I mean, there was the Will Smith run DMC rap, which I'm not insulting, but it, it wasn't as powerful as uh, Public Enemy, which came out at the late 80s and early 90s. And Nirvana and grunge was there to be that next wave, to kick the doors down and say, okay, we're enough of the poofy hair, heavy metal, and and new kids on the block and all that crap. And there's nothing out there right now that is dominant that Nirvana could kick down the doors of. It, it would still be a great album, but it wouldn't be a genre changer. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think if we look at something like the 80s, Reagan, uh, people, everybody getting home loans and credit cards. And, you know what I mean? Like, like, not to say that that was it, but like, life was good. People were happy. Like in the like there was a middle class, right? right. And the, the music, like, you know, it was heavy metal, but then it got into hair band stuff and it got into like stuff that was really about not about the music as much as it was about the presentation of the music. I'm not saying the people involved weren't into the music, but the the marketing of it had less to do with music and more to do about marketing. And people everybody was happy. And I but I think that like those the people who liked that music in the 80s were people who were born in the 70s generally and i think that the people who were born in the 80s who who were raised in the 90s so to speak if that makes sense right i feel like it was a response to that because they weren't super happy kids they were depressed and yeah. that was you know they 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 needed somebody that spoke to their issues right like a band like like run dmc talked about like people from like Queens their and Adidas. Kind of, they talked about their right. Adidas. Well, yeah. I mean, and if you were a, a, a kid from Hollis, Queens, which wasn't a, a super rough neighborhood, you, you related to what they were talking about. Do you know what I mean? If you, and then public enemy and all that other stuff, but then you had like the West coast thing where the people were like, Hey, our life isn't like happy go lucky. Like what the hell y'all talking about? We have it this way. You have like the, Tupac and Biggie and NWA and Ice Cube and you know I mean you had like a whole bunch of stuff that was a response to this kind of not happy rap but not violent rap you know what I mean there was definitely some battles and people talking yeah. about crime and stuff but I think that West Coast Compton crime was very very different than crime in Hollis Queens I don't know that it was drastically different than stuff in 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 Brooklyn like deep in Brooklyn like where Biggie was from but that was like a new thing, you know what I mean? Like, no, it wasn't talked about. And I feel like Nirvana was like that. Like, one of my friends, a manager that I in a band I used to work in said, you want to make a lot of money? Make young black boys want to smash stuff or make young white boys want to smash stuff and you'll make a lot of money. And he's kind of half joking. But, but in he's the like 90s, kind of half he right. Would, he would have been right because it really spoke to the anger that people were feeling that wasn't being addressed by the earlier music in the same way. I mean, I'm not well, a historian, but you know, you know what you make me think of, and I've only seen it once, but the movie Pleasantville, mm -hmm. have you seen it? Do you remember it? Is that the one that's, is it like in color and in black and white? Well, yeah, it's, it's the uh, tearing down of the 1950s where everybody says, you know, yeah. the 1950s were perfect and right. they go through and strip that facade away. And that's, I mean, you, you, when you have something like the 80s that is a veneer, but there's a yeah. dark underbelly, that's right. going to continually push until it breaks through, which it did in the early 90s and toward the late of the 80s with Public Enemy, with even Slayer and Metallica. And, and they were not political bands, but they were saying, hey, there, there's frustration, there's anger. You, you're putting on this, uh, this presentation that America's great and and there's nothing wrong and we resist that we're here to tell you that we're angry and even if it is just teen angst of hey we don't feel it and that movement exploded in the early 90s and and then okay um let's even go further the late 90s so the early 90s were nirvana pearl jam and a pushback against hair metal 
And then what happened in the late 90s? You had a pushback against that where um, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, and teen bubblegum shit came out because it was, mm-hmm. okay, we've been angry long enough and the economy was doing great. So it, it sort of came full circle again. I, I never looked at it that way. I never thought about it, but it is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I could be talking out my ass, but that's the way I remember it is, is happy, I mean, then I, anger, then anger, then happy. I mean, I would wonder, I wonder if you could do an analysis of what the economy is doing and theoretically how the middle class largely, how the middle class, lower, upper, upper, lower, like that spectrum, mm-hmm. I, if you could see how they're doing and then how that reflected on the music. I wonder if there's a correlation there. I would imagine there is a correlation there, but I, but it's just a hypothesis, you know what I mean? But I wonder because right now, there seems to be a combination of both. Like, it seems like there's everything now, right? There's all kinds of happy pop music. There's happy pop, happy country. There's poppy, popish rap, right? There's angry stuff. There's angry everything, happy everything, right? There's just everything. Well, that's what I said a little while ago. I, I, I'm old and out of touch. You're old and out of touch. But I, mm-hmm. I can't think of a, a dominant music right now that would have been dominant like metal, grunge, bubblegum, the the kitty bands the Britney Spears I can't think of hmm. one artist Taylor Swift is an icon but she doesn't she she there there's Taylor Swift okay like like Britney created Christina created uh, a half dozen I can't name them off the top of my head but you remember when there were a series of um, single white female uh, single white singers little girls uh, I just named the movie on accident but you know what I mean not, mm-hmm. not single white female the movie but but Taylor has not spawned a whole movement the way Nirvana did, the way Britney did, the way uh, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were. were hmm. Taylor is know. alone. So I, mean, I, I can't think I of would, anything. I would that, say that if you did a, if you did a YouTube search for Taylor Swift covers, I bet you would find hundreds, if not thousands, of young women girls essentially like you know 15 16 somewhere around there young women ish right but i bet you'd find tons of them with professionally recorded nicely mic'd practice doing their thing and i bet you find they all have a bunch of songs i think the market is so saturated that it's almost invisible you may be thinking you'd also find rebecca black but that has nothing to do with anything else that's just what i thought but, but i mean like you know one of my friends um, shout out to Mark Conklin. Uh, he's a cool cat. He uh, manages a handful of artists and he manages a few people who are like that. Like not Taylor Swift-ish, but like like young women who are making commercially viable music. You know okay. what I mean? Like I, I think that it's just, it's almost like ubiquitous these days. It's almost like, I don't want to say it's like porn, but it's like, you know, like, can you, like, not that people can't name porn stars, but can you name a porn star these days, right? Like, like they're just so I many. I, I can remember so when... Porn that, that, that it, there's no such thing as a porn star, right? right? Like, like, when Adele sold 2 million records, everybody was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. It was like Michael Jackson sold 250 million. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the idea of, like, literally... Well, Michael Jackson was around before MP3s and Spotify right. and Apple Music and Right, sharing. and before people had all those choices. Right. Right? Like, I mean, like, like pretty much Michael Jackson sold 250 million records or something ridiculous like that. I don't know what his, his gross is over time, and I'm sure there are people who have grossed more money than him, grossed more money than the Beatles, grossed more money than these people, but I don't know that they sold more records. Like legitimate, like you know what I mean. Like I don't know, I I don't know one way or the other, but but I know that like if a person sold a hundred million records or two hundred million records today, that'd be a lot. That'd be oh, it a sick amount, I would imagine. Any you any, I mean? I mean, okay, go go back to the late nineties when InSync or Backstreet Boys would have a number one album because it sold a million albums in one week, and right. then that album would go on to sell seven, eight, nine, ten overall. Now yeah. the number one album can be number one with 70,000 units moved because nobody's I mean, buying anything. 
Yeah, dude. I mean, but here's the funny thing. There's, it's like, it's become saturated, but it's also like a bit of a scam, right? Because people are still consuming music in large volumes. They're just not paying for it in that way. Like back in the day, artists, I remember like when Bruce Springsteen and like Michael Jackson were making like a quarter per record. That was yeah. like insane. It was like, oh my God, they get a quarter every time they sell an album. Well, wow. Like that was a slave on his cheek after he talked to right. Ani DeFranco. <laughs> Is that, was that the catalyst? Yeah. He, he, he was, was it Prince the road slave on his cheek? Yeah, it was him yeah. who did it. I didn't know. That yeah, he because he, he talked to Ani and he realized he was getting 25 cents an album. He said, how much do you make? And she said, I think four bucks. And he lost well, but she, it. But she owns her own. This is her record label. Yes, she, she found it and owns her own. But he, right. I mean, if he, you don't know that, if you just think, oh, I'm signed with Warner Brothers and they signed me to a multi-million dollar contract and you don't read that contract and you don't realize here's a million dollars up front and then we take that out of your album sales and you're touring. You just think you're a million. I mean, here's the thing. I think he knew full well what it was. Yeah. And I think he read it and that lawyers read it over. I think Ani DeFranco, I don't know her exact story, and I'm a huge Ani fan, but I think that she comes from money is my understanding. I don't know that that's true. It's almost no, I read her book. Um, she, she didn't come from poverty, but she didn't come from I think if I remember her book correctly, it was just she came from a normal middle-class yeah. family. Sort of. I, mean, it, it, I mean, ultimately, it's irrelevant. What, what she did, though, was she built something from the ground up. I mean, I yeah. remember we were kids, but I remember like when I first got turned on to her hanging out with like a handful of feminists, they were like, Oh yeah, she, it's just her and her car and a guitar. Yeah. And she toured all over. This Driving everywhere, sleeping on couches, sleeping right. in her car. Right. Like she, she wasn't. Had a, she, had a, she had a one man operation. One, her friend, uh, uh, her boyfriend at the time stayed in yeah. Buffalo and ran her industry. And it was yeah. just, I think he even right. said it was that he could answer the phone on his own until she mm-hmm. did Letterman or did a show or some, something like that. And then suddenly it was like, okay, I think we need to have an unpublished published number. But right. for most of the nineties, you could literally call and go, Hey, is this Ani's manager? Yeah. Where do you want her? I'll book. Her. Like it was right. That small yeah. Right. And, and, and Prince got on at a time when that would have been impossible. For him to take his band, like five, six people, right, and put out a record that made it to the radio and drove all and then tour and open up for people and do all that stuff. I don't know that that could be done in the late 70s. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I'm not saying it isn't possible, but he came out in the late he, 70s. He could have done it as a solo artist, but if you have, he could have done it, but talking it, about going broke constantly because yeah. he controlled everything, <laughs> right. but he had to pay for everything. So he would put, right. he would get all the money from an album and record the next album and then have to right. pay the band everything to tour. And if he didn't sell enough, he was broke. Right. I mean, dude, when we, we booked California, when we went out to California, Katie Henry that, band, Katie Henry band yes. music. Yes, there you go. We we booked that ourselves. It took months to get three weeks worth of dates, consecutive dates in a reasonable line to be and make enough money to be to book the flights, the tra- the, the travel, the cars, the hotels and Airbnbs, the accommodations like for everybody in the band, the food, the gigs lining them up, routing them properly. It took a few months of work for the two of us to really put that together. Katie's a real whiz with the organization stuff. Like she's really good at like putting this stuff out and like some kind of spreadsheet stuff so we can see it all and then we can connect dots. Like, like she's really good at that kind of stuff. And so, but I mean, that was a lot of work and that was a trio plus one. Right, that was uh, it was a trio. We functioned as a trio, and then we picked up a keyboard player and a guitar player. Flew out and did a handful of gigs with us. So it was a quartet almost every gig. But you know, we picked up people along the way, and it was a lot of work. I can't imagine having to do that in the '70s without an internet. 
yeah without internet and cell phones being able to handle shit from the road right like i can't yeah. even imagine Honey didn't have it in the 90s we had barely no, but, and, but in no, the and 90s cell phones the size but, of a brick right but she was also able to travel as a solo performer i think for yeah. prince's concept he couldn't have done no. his concept wasn't based around a dude in a piano or a dude in a guitar is based around a funk sound that took more people. I think he could he could call himself a slave because they locked him into a crazy ass contract like Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I, I seven, actually I give you seven I movies. Fucking had that <laughs> same thought. The instant you said locked him into that contract, I thought Eddie Murphy. <laughs> right, so, right. Insane that, that you said the same thing. Seven, seven movies. But you know, was he twenty one? He's like, oh hell yeah, seven yeah. movies. That's amazing. And then fucking like four movies in, he's like, wait a minute. I'm worth way more than this. And then, and then he starts putting out shit. Because, yep. <laughs> and, and Prince got locked into a contract. But he also, he did make an obscene amount of money, but not as obscene as he could have made. Because it's true. Making a, but at the same time, I, I, I go back and forth, right? Because I don't know what it costs to get a song on the radio in 1982. Do you know what I mean? Like it might have cost a lot. It yeah, might have cost a lot of pay into the, the marketing like, machine. But that marketing yeah, like, machine, you know, would would work him, would sell him, would would get on the it, radio. It could make you a star. Playing the song, exactly. Like I, I, I feel I would say indentured servant more than slave. Yeah. Not that there's only a, there's a marginal difference, but I would say indentured servant. You know what I mean? Like I would say Irish. slave. Per- <laughs> you know what I mean, but but I mean I don't know the ins and outs of it. I, but I have read a lot of stuff about Prince because there was a time when I was a massive Prince fan, still am, but it's just not in steady rotation. But I don't know, man. I, I've seen his crib. You know what I mean? I've seen pictures of his studio. Well, like he's doing all right. Sideways with that comment. <laughs> You said uh, still a massive fan, but not in rotation. I had an experience um, the other week. I don't think I told you about this because we haven't been speaking because you've been too busy moving and uh, and rearranging your life. And I'm, I'm yes, indeed you're arranged and settled. Um, <laughs> um, talking about old school artists, I put on Liz Fair's first album, which. Mm. Dude, I had that thing memorized backwards, forwards. When when that came out, it it, it spoke to me, as they say about music. It it spoke. Man, to you're me. so lucky. There's a PC world now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> means I'm afraid to say what I was about to say. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna challenge my sexual orientation. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well i put it on a couple of weeks ago i had it off by the fourth song i couldn't listen to it anymore i mean i just yeah. i moved on in life and and yeah. i was just trying and when you said you with prince it's like i try and think of most of the artists that i don't listen to anymore and you go all the way back to where this started with the 80s and happy oh god i hate i hate what i'm about to do and i apologize <laughs> i apologize about this really quickly i don't want to talk politics but I, I talk about my stupid friends uh, from high school um, and they still listen to the same shit they listened to in high school. They they would ask me every so often like, dude, Metallica's coming. You, we should go see Metallica. I'm like, I don't want to. Are they going to sign a contract that says they won't play anything after Injustice for All? Because I'll go see that. that. After Master of Puppets. Then it, they can play everything after Master of Puppets. Then they can play one and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, blackened is okay live. It's just you don't want to listen to Injustice for All because it's so tinny and poorly produced. But there are a couple of songs on Awful. there that are good live. Sure. But the bass is gone. The kick drum. The kick drum sounds like a fucking like a click. The kick drum's like a click. The bass is gone. Yeah. The guitars are like can't. They, I, I, it's it's not. I mean, oh, Master of Puppets is one hundred percent masterpiece. Actually, yeah. Um. I can't remember what track it was, but uh, Lydia got a new car a while ago and we have Sirius XM for a while. And mm-hmm. so I was flipping through and I found hair metal on Sirius XM and they were playing something <laughs> off and justice for all, which just shows that it's, again, they know nothing about hair metal. Uh, yeah, seriously. It was not. But I, I had this thought, I'm like, how cool would it be if Bob Rock 
um, went back and took the Masters of Injustice for All and gave it the Black Album Dr. Feelgood once over and like made it <laughs> meaty. That could be a good album. I don't know, man. I, I I listen. I think you're right. I think that it could be remastered, not even remastered, remixed, remixed. remastered, remixed, remastered. But I feel like if I listen to Master of Puppets, the bass sound is good on that. The drums sound good, a little bit reverb because it's the 80s, what are you going to do, right? But like the guitar sound, like the sounds are sounds that would inspire somebody to want to play an instrument. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I listen to Master of Puppets and I think, yeah, if I was a kid and this was the first thing I heard, I could see how I'd want to be a drummer, a bass player, a guitar player, or a singer if I sang, if I wanted to sing like that. I could see that easily. I listened to I listened to Injustice for All and I could give two shits about it. Yeah, you know when, I, I, mean? when I, I was listening to the track on Sirius XM, I didn't listen to the whole track. I, I listened to, I don't know, maybe a minute and then I'm like, all right, I've had enough. And, and yeah. it was just, not because I, I mean, I had a good nostalgic moment, like, oh, this is a, I remember this, but it's just I, <laughs> not because it was bad, just because of the production. I would love to hear some of the songs if, if reworked. But speaking of uh, hair wow. metal and uh, image, uh, I was flipping through the stations and I came across Britney Fox. Ah. What <laughs> a band that was. I never listened to him back in the day, but to, to have them come on and I looked at them like, Britney Fox, they, they look like Cinderella, and sounded like, and the singer sounded like Tom Waits. I mean, here you have this band with makeup and not not uh, kiss makeup, but like girl makeup, like poison. But he sounds like this when he's singing. I'm like, just what, a, what an odd juxtaposition to have. <laughs> I couldn't pick out Britney Fox songs. Oh, neither could I. I couldn't. I, I, I was Britney Fox and Cinderella confused. <laughs> Don't know what you got. Tennis gone. <laughs> I mean, that I was the tail your... end of that. That's when Nirvana came in and kicked everything apart because those bands were at yeah, the tail end where they, I mean... you remember them, but you never listened to them because at that point it just became so saturated. They were just throwing money at yeah. anybody. Here, you play rock and roll, put on fishnet stockings and dress like a girl and we're going to sign you. And I wonder how many of those bands actually liked or wanted that image and how many were forced into it. I mean, I, my I understanding all... is that my understanding is that Skid Row wanted to be a hard, a harder band, but they were friends with Bon Jovi and he could kind of get them in on mm -hmm. that kind of commercial rock thing. And then once they were in, they wanted to go heavy. I don't know that that's true. Again, this it is. is all they, they have some say, songs. Um, it's just that yeah, our hits but, were 18 to life. And, uh, and I remember you, the ones that were really, really well produced. Wow. And a you little, really, you just, you just never, you never well. smoked a lot of weed, did you? No. Okay, because you, <laughs> you can remember that shit. I'm like, oh my God, do you remember that? Um, <laughs> That's all I remember about my childhood is music. Because I ask, oh, ask me uh, any of my classmates' names. Ask me uh, right. anything about my parents or childhood. I couldn't tell you fucking shit. But music, right. that I got. Right. Well, but let, let, let's go sideways with this for a minute. What I listened to some Stevie Wonder the other day, oh. and I was blown away by how I could listen to a song from the 70s that I not only have I heard a thousand times, I've played on stage a thousand times with dozens, if not hundreds of different people, hundreds of different variations. I know the song backwards and forwards, and yet I can listen to it and go, holy shit, I never heard that. I mean, right? how like, good to is the visions? Start to yeah, back, dude. the entire right. album. Yeah, right. Like, this shit is incredible. I listen to a police song comes on the radio, and I go, wow, for three people, they have a lot of nuance. Yeah. There are a lot of details, right? Like you can put on headphones and hear stuff that is really only three people, maybe a couple overdubs here or there, but you can hear details that are like still new after having heard it a thousand times. Do you well, know what I mean? Like, you know, I can't it's incredible. Listen to King of Pain and yeah. I discover half the time I'm listening to that song that when it's over, I'm like, oh shit, all I listen to is the drums. Like right. I, I just realized all I'm listening to is the percussion. That's it. And then I have right. to like listen to the song again if it's not on the radio. If, I, if I'm, right. but yeah, now, it's again, we'll make this a day of shout outs. Rest in peace. Uh, Bruce Matthews, friend of mine, keyboard player from years ago who died uh, a handful of years ago. He said to me, well, you know, it was back when I was a jazz musician. 
he said, <laughs> he said, you know, when you listen to jazz music, you need to listen to the some to the album seven times. You listen like if it's a quartet, right? You listen to it once, and you listen to the whole thing. Listen to all the instruments. You listen to the song, listen to all the instruments. Then you listen to it and you isolate, let's say, the drums. Then you isolate the bass. Then you isolate the chord, chord instrument, let's say a piano. Then you isolate, then you listen to uh, the soloist, right? You take different passes. And then you listen to it two more times. Each other time you're listening to how the drums and bass work and then how the, how the chordal player and the soloist work. And then if you listen to it an eighth time, you listen to it again, the whole thing, and you'll just hear all these details because you were able to focus on each thing. If I listen to Unskinny Bop, let's say, Poison, Smash It, I don't know that I would need to listen to that seven times. Now, maybe I'm not giving it a fair chance, and maybe the production value is amazing and with headphones. Like if you listen to... Motley Crue stuff through headphones. There's things you only hear in the headphones, right? right? He'll, he'll make some sexual reference. And if you listen, you hear a girl go <laughs> and giggle in the background and a zipper go down, right? But you won't hear that through. It's like, there's all kinds of like headphone trick production that like they did on that stuff. But that, those are like, those aren't details in the same way that like when the, when the horn player hit this high note, the bass hits this low note, and the piano hits this chord that, that connects them together. You know what I mean? It's like- I'll, it's even, I'll, go you, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one right off. I'm sorry, I apologize for interrupting, but you talk mm -hmm. about details. Um, um, oh shit, I had it, then I lost it. Maybe you did smoke a lot of weed. Maybe I did. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's either de do 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 de da 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 or don't stand so close to me. I think it's de do mm -hmm. where Stuart Copeland just opens his hi-hat for no reason toward the end of the song. Yeah. And I remember the first time I heard it, I'm like, like I'd heard the song a million times and suddenly I just realized, like Stuart opened his hi-hat right there. It's been closed the entire time. I was like, you know, and, and it just, it blew my goddamn mind. Absolutely. And I wish I could remember which of the two songs it is. Maybe both. But right. um, yeah, it's Do funny you, know, you mentioned um... Poison and Unskinny Bop because again, hair metal station, Every Rose Has Its Thorn <laughs> came on. I, I'd been listening to a song when <laughs> I started. And I, I've, I, I had never heard the song start to finish. And so I said, all right, let's just leave this on. And to this day, I still have not heard it start to finish. It was like, <laughs> it's, it's just a bad song. It's just bad. I, I listened to like two minutes of it. I think I got close to the guitar solo. I said, I, I've heard enough. I just can't. I, I have yet to hear that song start to finish. And it was such a big song. Oh, huge. Massive. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I feel like I listen to Bridge Over Troubled Water by Aretha's version of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm blown away by some of the like guitar swells and details. Blows me away. I listen to The Weight by the band, the version with the staple singer singing with them. The kind of the way that the voices go, Levon's voice, Mavis's voice, good lord, the shit just like makes you want to cry it's so good that's the thing right like i feel like the difference between music today the music from yesteryear is that there's something in the rawness that somehow gives it a timeless quality because and i'm not saying that i mean look who knows like there's some great records there's some great records because <laughs> i i would push back against your statement if only because I, I think we tend to glorify the past because we only remember what we remember that's good. And yes. when you go back, I, I, I was listening to, um, this is a radio station. It wasn't the uh, XM that I know of, or it doesn't matter. And on Sunday morning, I was, I was driving somewhere, probably coming home from a gig. Remember gigs? Thanks, coronavirus. <laughs> um, and they were doing a Casey Kasem throwback top, 40 countdown from whatever every Sunday they would do a different top 40 countdown and oh, it was the top fun. 10 songs of whatever fucking month in 87 85 I did not recognize most of the songs and they mm -hmm. sucked they were really <laughs> but then when I they mean, yes. here's number two with Madonna I'm like okay I recognize that because it, it was big enough to but at, most music sucks 
and it's always sucked. And when you go hmm. back and say back then things were different, I don't really think they were. I think what happens is Maybe. Marvin Gaye stands the test of time because he mm -hmm. didn't suck. Bitches Brew stands right. the test the I'm a sex of time, the test of time. And, and the reason I think of Bitches Brew is because that's an album I can put on and listen to different things. There is so much going on there that yeah. it's almost impossible to, to digest in one sitting. You have to do repeated listens to Bitches Brew. So I guess what you said about uh, things being more raw or different back then, I think, I think just what's good lasts and the, the, everything else falls. All right. All right. Forget how bad it was. Tell me who you think in a modern sense. See, but here's what I would wonder. If you took the top 10 songs, top 10 R&B songs from 1974, and you took the top 10 R&B songs from 2020, this week in both years, I wonder if the top 10 R&B songs are going to be as popular and as memorable as the top 10 from 70. Let's say, let's make it like an even 50 years, right? 1970 to 20, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if you took this same month, this same week from both years, if in 50 years, people are going to still be thinking about what the top 10 songs are today in the same way that we think about the top 10 for 74. And I don't know that the top 10 for 74 are or 70 or anything, but, but what I can say is that I can think about Willie Nelson songs. I can think about Stevie Wonder songs, Roberta Flack songs. I can think about Santana. I can think about all kinds of stuff that I can pinpoint as from this time and for this era where these songs were fantastic. And I wonder if the songs that are hits today will stand the test of time in the same way. I don't know. I mean, again, like you say, we're old fucks, you know what I mean? Like as George Carlin says, we're not old farts, we're old fucks. You know what I mean? And if, and that's, and if that's the case, you know, maybe we are just so out of touch that we think it's not going to be popular, but in 50 years, they're going to be doing that. Yes, you and I've been, looking, I've been looking for a pen to write something <laughs> down so I wouldn't forget because I didn't want to interrupt you again. Um, I have two thoughts. Feel free to. I'll, I'll, I'll do my thoughts um, I'll, I'll, in reverse order. So, because I have a question and I'll, I'll do my first thought second so that I can ask the question and let you run with it. Um, as far as us being old, um, college football just started this past week again. It had been shut down because of COVID, but they, they had a game. And I, was, I went on a... 30 mile bike ride at, and it, I ended up in downtown Iowa city at one point and Iowa city to those that don't know is a college town, uh, Hawkeye football, very big. And I ended up, you know, by college students going down a whole row of, you know, where they rent houses and fraternity. And I swear to you, I didn't realize it until probably the third one, but then I noticed at least two more. Like I, I was riding by a house and I went, Oh, Cool. Yeah, they're they're all outside. Even though it's cold, they're playing hacky sack and blaring music and drinking beer and and tailgating at home. So I go by and I'm like, oh, cool, ACDC. And then I go by the next house and I'm like, oh, Def Leppard. And it was the third one. I'm like, wait a second. You know, like I, get, I don't remember what it was. Maybe Bon Jovi. But I'm like, I realize like all these 20 year old kids are listening to the 80s rock. It was fraternities. Yeah. It was guys. I'm like, well, that's interesting. None of them were listening to anything from today. And then once I noticed that and came across two more, so there is something to be said. Maybe it's retro or now it's classic rock because we are old. So that's one thought as far as enduring songs go. But then here's my question. This is the second thought I had. When it comes to comparing R&B from then to R&B to today, what the fuck is R&B today? Because when you and I were wow, growing up, okay, it was valid. rhythm and blues. It was right. rhythm and blues. It was Ray Charles. It was Marvin Gaye. And at then some point during our life, I think it was the 80s, Janet Jackson came out with something. And, and 1984, Rhythm, rhythm Nation, decent album, listenable, uh, fun. But they said it was R&B. And I'm like, that's not R&B. And at some point, R&B just became mm. black. And it has nothing mm -hmm. to do with rhythm or blues. And mm -hmm. when did that change and what happened? And how is R&B R&B with neither rhythm nor blues these days? I am genuinely, genuinely confused as a honky American. I mean, again, don't take your historical, uh, historical knowledge from 
a bass player. Even no, this one you can. You are both black and a musician. So if anybody yeah, can ask but, a question about music and R&B, yeah, right. it should go, be you. Right. Go down to your bass. Go down to your basement to get your token. Get your bass token. Right. I'm gonna play the bass. Token. How many times do I have to tell you? Go down to your basement to get your bass. Right. You show up right, later. God damn it. Right. Isn't that what he says? I think he says, "God damn." He, he does. And Fine. then when he plays, when he plays, he goes, "Man, I can't play this thing." And yeah. he goes, "I hate you." <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> um, here's what I think. And again, this is a thought. It's a hypothesis, not a fact. I think that the reason why, if you trace the lineage of rock, like rock from the 70s, I give it the same thing, right? Like what rock in the 70s was great, a lot of phenomenal stuff. And rock today is not the same thing as it was 50 years ago. I think that if I follow the thread, of let's say Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, whatever, whatever stuff was popular then, Eric Clapton, Yardbirds, all that stuff, like any kind of blues-based rock music, I could trace that up into ZZ Top, into ACDC, into the punk stuff, into the rock into grunge right like i could see how that stuff is still deeply connected to what nirvana was doing right i could follow that thread relatively easily because they're all using instruments and they all have the same kind of influences and they all you know what i mean like it's not three chord rock but they're all basing it on the same kind of system whereas the r&b thing when the music started being created by machines, by people with machines, because it was cost-effective, arguably. Uh, it's right? funny that I mentioned Rhythm Nation because there's an album that has zero musicians playing on it. Right, and I think that what happens is that, like, the more you disconnect it from people playing instruments, the more it starts to be able to do other stuff. And so then the computer... And Adam Levine said this from Maroon 5, I think, at some point. He said the computer was like the fifth member of the band, right? And, like, at this point, R&B, like, I remember when Destiny's Child came out and they were flipping beats around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was like, good Lord. Like, you know. And then drummers, real drummers, started playing like the machines. Hmm. And it, like, because you could do that, it literally created this whole new way of playing because you could actually, because people would do it with the machines, then drummers would have to duplicate it. So now you've got drummers doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And then D'Angelo came out with Voodoo, which had everybody playing behind the beat and, and Questlove playing like a drum machine, but with feel like, I feel like. Yeah, I remember that. I remember, I, I saw an interview with him where he like, talked about that, learning to, yeah. Yeah, and I what I feel like is that R&B kept the rhythm and lost the blues. Like the music was no longer based on the blues. When I listen to music to R&B, and not even R&B, just most music that is not made by people with instruments, and that's not a criticism, because I don't think that there are any less musicians, I don't think that songs are any less good, and I don't think, you know what I mean, I think they created a new palette. You got guys like Skrillex and people who are just making, they're making up styles of music by themselves ultimately. And I'm sure Skrillex didn't exist in a vacuum. No, nobody exists in a vacuum, but like people start, you know, you could do this stuff in your bedroom, kind of slicing and editing in a clever way. Like the guy, there's kind of, I want to say Black Orchid or Black Lotus. He was doing all like people were doing such crazy Jay Dilla, like all these people were doing crazy things and mixing and matching and all this stuff that wasn't based on a one, four, five chord progression. And I think the rock stuff kind of kept in touch with the blues in a way that R&B didn't. Again, what the fuck do I know? You know what I mean? I'm just the dude with the bass and the yoga mat, you know. right? No, but but I mean, I'm I'm theorizing, right? I, I, mean, I don't even if you're know, spitballing, that's I'm, pretty I'm fucking good off the top of your head. But but I mean it. But it makes sense. Uh, it's lo- It's logically sound. But I don't know that it's actually true. But I think that's what happened. Is because I think that when church music, church music got really big 
somehow like it was always cool, but somehow like in the nineties, in the eighties, late eighties into the nineties into now, church music just exploded. Like well, bands became a massive thing for that because they stole very generously from from gospel traditions. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, they did. They they fully admit it. Mm-hmm. They yeah. the big soaring songs and 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 absolutely. They 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 listened to gospel music and said, okay, if we say, if we turn a, uh, they they just took Jesus out of it. They kept the the inference of God in mm-hmm. without making it blatant and you know mm-hmm. popularized. Again, like the South Park, they did the exact opposite they, of South they, Park. They, they said, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what do they call what do they call Faith Plus One? Yeah, Faith Plus One. <laughs> Some shit. Yeah. Like that. Awesome. Big soaring <laughs> choruses, uh, uplift. I oh, mean, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of gospel in you too, and they just they I they see that. want to do it. They know they. Yeah. What, what is it? Uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. They've never been yeah. shy about it. They said, "This is what we listen to. We wanted to take it. It's great." I mean, I think that's what I think. Most of the modern innovations in music are just cross pollination. Yeah, like people stealing from one thing and putting it into another. Something that's perfectly ordinary in this one style of music that is revolutionary in this other style of music, and this person just put them together. Oh, it's like, mean? The, like the new I breed of country of called Hickok, uh, which is the country person <laughs> of rap, you know? Well, I'm yeah, excited I to listen to of these young guys that are, that are rapping country songs. Hickok. Wow. Hickok? Hickok? I don't know, something like that. Hickok would, yeah. would probably make the most sense. Hip hop instead of hip hop. <laughs> That's awesome. I wonder if they like have their American flags in their Trump pants while they're doing hip hop. <laughs> How funny would that be? Oh, that's awesome. That's fascinating. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I actually may look into this because I'm a little curious. I may just ask a few friends who may know more than I do about the evolution of music and the history of music. You know, because like. I used to want to do a show called from from bebop to hip hop that talked about how bebop led into hip hop and how hip hop was essentially like had the same elements of bebop to a certain degree like the creativity and the improvising and stuff. Well, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, isn't hip hop wouldn't that be the verbalization of the horn in bebop? In theory, the yes, that was of the horn. Right. Yes, that was my theory. My theory is that we could have a show that I, because all the people that I was playing with back in the day when I was playing jazz, they all loved hip hop too. So like we could swing and then groove and then do some hip hop stuff. And then one of my friends said, well, yeah, but like if you do that, then really hip hop comes from, and then you have to get from the reggae influence here. And he's like, oh, and I was like, oh, wow, there's just so much about that that I don't know. (laughs) Right, like on the certain, I don't know that he's right either. But what I, I do know is I don't know. Not knowing is best if you go in ignorant and just do music is supposed to be passionate. So if you just like, I want to yeah. do this and you just try it, sometimes that works better than overthinking it. Absolutely. And I think from a creative standpoint, you can do whatever the hell you want. Right. But if I was actually going to build a show that was supposed to be like, like a historical evolution of jazz into hip hop over the course of let's say 12 songs we start off swinging and then we move up and we we seem we go it wouldn't be seamlessly but it would be a subtle shift like every every 10 years we'll play this bebop song or this bebop song then this kind of song then this kind of jazz funk song then this kind of funk jazz song right then this kind of funk jazz song with lyrics then hip hop and then into where you know this was like the early 2000s I wanted to do this. So, you know, it would be something like, or mid 2000, mid like 2005, 06, something like that, right? You know, and then seamlessly connect like 2005 or six to 1966 through music over the course of 12 songs or something like that. You know, that was the idea. And I think it could absolutely be done. I don't know that it would be historically accurate. It could be a really good show. I just don't know if the show would actually be historically accurate. I think it'd be fun. I think it'd be victor. good. You're on stage doing it. It's accurate because you're saying it's so this. <laughs> right. There you go. That's all that matters. If I say it's true, it's true. That sounds yeah. about right. That's um, <laughs> it makes me a millennial. 
<laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, you got anything to plug, my friend? Well, yes. Katie Henry Band live at Bernie's Hillside Tavern this Friday, October 30th, providing it doesn't rain. Because we're still outside. We're outside and it's probably going to be cold. But we'll definitely warm it up. The last gig we did was cold. By the time we got to the end, and we were only playing, we played, we opened up for this guy, Peter Carp. Um, And we only played 45 minutes. By the end of that 45 minutes, man, my fingers were. They don't have those uh, heat lamps on the stage? Radiating not, a, not at this place. They didn't have them. Oh. They might have them at Bernie's, but if it rains, I don't know what we're supposed to do. I'm really curious about what how this is supposed to work into the winter. If, you know, we just had a gig canceled that was it was really great. We had two nights booked in a row at this place, uh, the Lidditz Shirt Factory in Pennsylvania. It's a great club. It's a brand new place, beautiful place. And we're not able to do it because they they can do 25% capacity. Yeah. And the restaurant is opening up, but it's not fully ready to be open yet because of COVID, right? Like this, this, this gig has been rescheduled twice already, maybe three times. We were supposed to do it back in like April or May or something. And it's like literally. So it's been like, I'm a little concerned about what the winter is going to bring if we can't go inside. Oh, it's, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if we can't go, even I mean, even at fifty percent, like shit. I mean, you playing jazz music, shit. Fifty percent pack club is full to you. Jazz musicians been playing twenty. Hey, the club capacity. is at twenty five percent capacity. It's what? our biggest audience yet. <laughs> right, exactly. Jazz musicians been playing at twenty percent capacity before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll say it again one more time. When I go through and listen, I'll, fi- I'll find it. And I'll put a yeah. scroll up. But one more. What's the, if it happens uh, this Friday? Uh, Bern- Bernie's Hillside Tavern, six to nine. Um, so I think we'll probably just do two sets. All right. Uh, Katie Henry Band, October 30th. We're probably going to dress up as something because it's day for Halloween. Yeah. So I'll probably, you know, I'll probably come in blackface or something offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, why wouldn't you? You should put blackface <laughs> on your face and just do it. I, just wonder what would, I wonder what would happen if I did blackface. I mean, I would be offended if I did it. It would be a bit like, did you see Bamboozled? Be a bit like that. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's one of Spike Lee's. It's a great It's a great commentary on it. It's a bunch of, <laughs> it's two black actors who get a job and they, they do it in blackface, like an old school minstrel show. Right, and I guess there's a point in it where, like, the whole audience, everybody's yelling, "Yay, I'm a nigger!" or some shit like that. It's like ridiculous, but it becomes something. It like becomes like a legit like minstrel show, and I guess it takes off, and it's just like the the battle that he goes through psychologically, <laughs> kind of what like being successful at this thing that is kind of demeaning but you know it's just it's an interesting thing anyway isn't that what uh, black people in black face it's, it's we go on another tangent isn't that what yeah. Chappelle went through yeah basically he same idea. contract because he's like look i'm trying to do comedy here but now it's becoming like people aren't getting the 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 satirical edge to it they're they're just taking it at face yeah. value and he wasn't sure how he felt about that right he's right they're laughing at the wrong stuff they're right. not laughing at the satirical nature of it they're laughing at this other thing that is actually not the funny part. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. Well, yeah, if you are around New Jersey, anyone watching, listening, uh, yes. Bernie's Hillside Tavern this Friday. What are you up to? Are you friend, doing anything? Do Nothing going on. Week. Let's get back on our regular yes. schedule. Now that we, you are. I sleeping. like this idea. Yeah. I like it. I got a new place and new digs and yeah, it's fun. I'm digging it. Good, good, and good. I got a cool Philadelphia good, shirt. Good, so. awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Good to see you. Bye. See ya.